Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. How many of you are familiar with the Flying Walendas? You've heard of that family, that group before. Uh, they're even like lately, uh, Nick, one of the great grandsons or great grandsons of the founding, the father of the family, has had a couple of primetime specials. So if you don't know, uh, this is a family of tightrope walkers, and that's what they do, it's what they're known for. And so what they do is very interesting. It's very dangerous because they don't use nets below them to catch themselves, and they go really far distance over really high distance. So here's the thing with this sort of endeavor is sometimes they're very successful at getting from one side to the other. Many times, more often than not, they are. And even recently, you know, Nick Linda on live TV has crossed, was it like the Niagara Falls and a volcano or something? And he, he made it across on live TV. But through the years, as you would imagine, this family has not been so fortunate. Uh, Back in 1963, they had one of their first major uh, catastrophes where, again, no net. So in front of a live audience, three of the family fell to their death. And then in 1978, uh, really the patriarch of the family, Carl Walenda, fell to his death on live television. This was being filmed in 1978. And he fell about 120 feet down onto the road, the pavement below him. So sometimes they're successful. It's not start to start with a bummer. <laughs> but, so sometimes this endeavor is successful, and sometimes it's not, but it's a tightrope walk. So this series that we're starting today, for me, is that way. We're starting a four-week series called Church and State. That's a tightrope walk for me, okay? I want you to, I, I feel like I'm, you know, there's no, there's no net below me. So typically, and the reason I say that is typically, what are the two subjects that you're told to avoid in conversation? Religion and politics. So what are we going to do for the next four weeks? We're going to mash them together in like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich of sermons, okay? We're going to take this issue of church and state, politics and religion, put them together, and just see what happens. See if I fall to my death in front of a live audience for the next four weeks, okay? So here's what we're doing with this series. Here, There's two main sets of questions, kind of two sides of the same coin that we're going to examine. The first set of questions, the first main question is, should the church as a group, as if you want to call it an organization, as a movement, should the church engage in politics and social issues? If so, how? To what degree? What does that look like? If, if not, if the answer is no, then what are we left to do? Are we helpless in our culture? The second main question and set of questions is the other side of that coin, and that is, personally, should Christians individually involve themselves in political engagement and in social engagement, social issues? If so, how do we do that properly, and to what degree do we involve ourselves in those dicey issues? And if not, why not, and what does that mean 
for us. So that's what we're going to look at the next four weeks. And today's going to serve as an introduction to this idea to help us frame the conversation for where we're going to go from here. And so how we're going to do that is we're going to, we're going to sort of answer these questions today by looking, so we're going to see how do I as a Christian involve myself in politics, or do I? And how as a church are we to do that, or are we, based on how Jesus involved himself in politics and social issues? So we're going to look at his example this opening week, kind of get a broad view of how he would answer these questions to see how we should then answer them. And so we're going to look at this fundamental question today is, was Jesus political? The answer is yes. Jesus was political. Now, what we're going to read at the beginning here to kind of set the stage is Luke 4, 16 through 21. And I would, I would equate this moment in the life of Jesus sort of as a stump speech. If you're not familiar with what that term is, it's basically where a politician who travels from town to town to town, they're basically going to give the same speech at every stop. So if you're on their staff or you follow them from place to place, you're going to hear the exact same talking points almost in the exact same way every single time. Basically, it's these are my core beliefs that I have. These are the, these are the few things that I'm going to do if I'm elected. And they just, they just tell you all of this in, their, in the stump speech. So Luke 4, 16 through 21, in a way, we're going to treat it as a stump speech of Jesus politically. Okay, Luke 4, 16 through 21, here's what Luke records. When he came to the village, that's Jesus, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, so it's like me going back to my hometown, running for office, okay? He went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So this is Jesus's political stump speech. What I want to do for a couple minutes as we get started is pull basically what we would call Jesus' political platform. So every political party has a platform. These are our core beliefs. So from here, I'm going I'm to pull four. If Jesus was running for office, these are the four issues that he just told us that he's passionate about, okay, politically. So here's the first one. Jesus is very much into poverty assistance. Poverty. He says, I'm going to give good news to the poor. Clearly what, what he's saying there. But you might think, well, what does that actually mean? How does that translate? He goes a bit further in Luke 6 in his Sermon on the Mount, as Luke records it, about the poor. Here's what he says, Luke 6, verse 20. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. This is different from Matthew's recording of this, because Matthew's, Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says the poor in spirit. But here, Luke doesn't say that. He says, blessed are you who are poor. So, and we look at the ministry of Jesus, he's always reaching out to the poor, the marginalized, the weak, right? That, that's his 
That's his whole method of operation. That's his whole issue here is meeting the needs of the poor. So if we're, to, if we're going to make a political platform of Jesus here, the first thing is poverty assistance. So far, he's got my vote. I'll, I'll check that box. I'll, you know, no hanging chads here. We're going to, you know, whatever. So then the second thing we see from Luke 4 is criminal justice reform. What, what else does he say in Luke 4? He says, I'm here to pro- proclaim freedom to the captives. He's going to free all the prisoners. Well, I don't know about that one, Jesus, okay? That's what he says, freedom to the captives. That's part of his message of good news, this criminal justice reform. So now we're maybe, I don't know how you feel about that one or what you think. So, so far, you're just trying to go down his platform to see if you would vote for Jesus. The third issue he mentions in Luke 4 is affordable health care. Wow, how many times have we heard that phrase in our lifetime in speeches and in debates? Affordable health care. Jesus said it in his speech here. He says the blind will see. He will cause the blind to see. And we know that health care was important to Jesus because that's one of his lasting legacies was he healed people. Now, his teachings did set him apart because they were so radical, but he's a Jewish rabbi. He's just a simple Jewish teacher, just like hundreds of other Jewish teachers who have existed, thousands who have existed before and even since him. So every Jewish teacher teaches. They all give speeches. They all have opinions about Scripture. They all tell you things that the Scripture says, but really what helped to really accelerate his separation was that he was a miracle worker. He healed people. And it was such a big deal that even later when Peter, one of his disciples, is talking to a non-believer about Jesus, one of the few things he mentions is Jesus' healing ability. Acts 10.38, this is Peter speaking. He's preaching to non-Jews, non-believers. They don't know anything about Jesus or very, very little. He says, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So with Jesus, he doesn't care about your pre-existing condition, okay? With Jesus, he doesn't need to see your insurance card to treat you. With Jesus, he worked pro bono. It was so affordable, he did it for free, free health care. Jesus is really into affordable health care. It was a legacy that he had even years, even 2,000 years later. It's something that we still talk about. Because not every other Jewish rabbi did those, didn't do that, right? Jesus really alone sort of did that. So he's into affordable health care. The fourth issue of the political platform of Jesus from Luke 4 is social justice. Now, this is a big one in our culture. So this one we might really want to zone in and pay attention to. Because what he says, so he does say, I'm going to free the captives, yes, criminal justice reform. But then he also says that the oppressed he will set free. That's part of his political platform. The oppressed will be set free. This is a theme in all of the Old Testament. Now, we will come back to this issue of social justice in our final week of this series. We will hit this, the nail on the head. We will hit this issue right away. But we do see social justice, maybe not in the same way that we frame it now. We do see this issue all throughout the Old Testament. So it's something that the people of Israel knew what, what he meant. And he, it was something that was within him. So even the Old Testament prophet Micah, Micah 6, verse 8, is a challenge He says, this is Micah the prophet speaking. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord, I can't say that, Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So Jesus believed in social justice. We'll talk about in a couple, three weeks, 
if that matches our modern day version of that, it may or may not. You may be surprised how that translates or does not. But Jesus actually believed this and even took it one step further, actually two steps further. Step one is Matthew 7, 12. It's the golden rule. Jesus says, whatever you would that men would do to you, do unto them. That's social justice. If I'm going to treat my neighbor the way I want to be treated, then no one would be mistreated by default, by definition. If I'm going to treat people at least as good as I want to be treated, then we're all going to get treated pretty well. He goes even one step further than that, doesn't he, though? Because what else does he say? We'll talk about this the next couple of weeks. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you. So he is extreme in this idea of social justice. Love your enemies. He he said, you heard it's written eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. If If we all did that, I mean, it's heaven on earth, right? So there's a breakdown somewhere in what Jesus proposes he wants to do, wants to see, and what we actually see. But he believed in social justice. There's a fifth issue on his political platform I want to cover for a couple of minutes. It's not in, math, or it's not in Luke 4, uh, but it is a big political issue, and that is the issue of taxes. Read my lips, okay? So Jesus... Jesus talks about taxes, not in, not in Luke 4, but later on in Mark chapter 12, and it's, he sort of has a debate, if you will. Uh, really, I would consider this a town hall, okay? He's in front of a crowd, and someone from the crowd asks him a question, you know? So Philip from Samaria, you have a question for Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, my question. And so here's what happened. Let me set the scene, uh, because... You'll you'll just see where I'm going with this in a second. Okay, Mark 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So, Pharisees you might be familiar with, Herodians you may not be. Let me just tell you, these two groups politically do not get along. They are not aligned in their purposes. The Pharisees are the spiritual arm of Israel. They are very much faithful to the law of Moses. They are very much faithful to the, way, the nation of Israel religiously. The Herodians, however, they are loyal to King Herod. Now, Herod is Jewish, but he's also a sellout to the Roman government. So the reason that Herod is called the king of the Jews, he, he's, he's really a puppet, right? He's a middle manager, Uh, because he's called the king of the Jews, but he's basically, I think of it like a vice principal, okay? The vice principal's job is to deal with bad kids and then report to the principal if if they need their assistance. Herod is a vice principal. His task is keep the Jews in line or we're going to, it's over, you know? Like Rome has told him, hey, we'll let you have a title. We'll let you have some power with your group of people here, uh, but you're not really in charge. We are. And Herod is like, that sounds good to me. It's better than no power. Some power is better than none. So he sells out to the Roman Empire to still maintain some sense of power. So the Herodians are people who are loyal to him and really sell outs to the Roman government as well. So, of course, they are not loyal to Israel as the Pharisees are. So these two groups don't get along. But guess what? They come together here to trap Jesus is what Mark says. It's kind of this idea, that these phrases, the, the friend of my enemy is my enemy but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what we see going on here. The enemy of my enemy, oh, now is my friend for this one moment in Mark chapter 12. So they come to Jesus, and here's what they do first. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. This is a political tactic that we call buttering up. Okay? This is what we call flattery. What they're doing here is they're saying, if we flatter him enough, maybe he'll let his guard down and slip up. If we get him off track and he's like, why are you being so nice to me? And then we ask him this terrible question, he's going to make a mistake. That's what they're trying to do here. So here they, they butter him up, they try to get him off his game, and then they ask him this question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? This is a clear trap. Again, remember, the two groups that are combining forces do not ever do this. And Jesus knows this. Even the people around know this. Didn't make a rocket scientist in that culture to figure out, why are they teaming up here? Okay, so here's the trap. If Jesus says, yes, pay your tax to Caesar, the Pharisees are going to call him out as a sellout. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, then the Herodians are going to have him on their watch list. He can expect to have an audit performed on him very soon because he's saying, don't pay your taxes. So he, there's no good answer here. So Jesus does what any shrewd politician would do, and he half answers the question. I don't know if you watched the debate the other night. That was, there was a lot of that going on. All, the, whole, the whole thing, right? That's just how politicians are. We can complain about it, but it's a great tactic, okay? It works. <clears throat> so here's what Jesus says. Now, he sort of does that, but he does, he does them even one better than that, actually. Uh, the end of verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy, why are you trying to trap me, he asked. And then he says, bring me a denarius or a coin and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Again, he's a shrewd politician. They ask him a yes or no question and he gives them two answers to a yes or no question. So what he's saying is really yes and. So he is, he is directly answering the question, but he's giving them more information than what they asked for to save himself from being caught in a corner. Okay? So because when he, what he does here, neither side now can point the finger at him and say, you did this. He, he was sort of dodgy, but sort of not, that uh, they, they have to all be, they just said they were amazed. They just walked away like, man, he did it again. How does he do that? How does he get out of our trap every time? So on the surface, what Jesus is saying is, yes, pay your taxes, and also, yes, pay your tithe. We're not talking about tithing today, but we will on Wednesday, so get ready, okay? Pay your taxes and pay your tithe. He's answering one question with two answers to give both parties what they're looking for plus more than what they're looking for, okay? We'll come back to this as we close because there's a, there's a deeper point I want to get to. So Jesus was political. He had a political, you know, stump speech that he gave. He had issues that he was passionate about. He was busy working on those issues, so he was political. And the other thing, the second thing may, may seem obvious, but it's also important that we know that Jesus was seen as political. And you would think, well, if, if he was political, obviously he's seen as political, but here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I mean. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is important to how Jesus was seen, as we'll talk about in just a second. Isaiah, 6, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here's what Isaiah the prophet says about 600 uh, B.C. For to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So again, this prophecy from Isaiah is talking about this person, the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one, the redeemer, the rescuer, the savior of the Jewish people. They've been looking for this person to come for hundreds of years by the time Jesus shows up. And he at times either hints at being that person or outright makes claims that he says, I am that person. That description that Isaiah said that over and over, all the prophecies about the prophets, they're talking about me. So if you make that claim, you're going to be seen in a political light. And so the politics in Jesus' day, are, we're, we already talked about a little bit, they're kind of messy. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of layers to the politics in the days of Jesus. So the overpowering government is the Roman Empire. They control most of the then-known world. I mean, it's the, the most vast empire the world has ever seen. And they're in control, but they allow the different people groups under them to still do their thing. So the Jewish people still have some identity. They can worship their God, and they can sing their songs, and they can read their scriptures as long as they still obey Caesar, as long as they still come under the control, the rule of Rome. So there's some overlap there. And then, as we already saw, with that, you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders who will give just enough, uh, you know, power and glory to Caesar when they need to to keep to stay alive, uh, but their real motivation is the spiritual law. We, you know, Rome has their laws. We're concerned about the spiritual law of God. So you've got these competing factors, and then they throw in the middle of that a Messiah who's going to be a disruptor because the Messiah is going to, it says, he's going to rule on David's throne. He's going to reestablish the nation of Israel as their own independent kingdom. That's what the Messiah is going to do. So this figure has always been seen as a political figure, as a king, as a warrior leading in battle, like literally leading in battle, literally killing and overthrowing the occupying government, whoever it happens to be, and it happened to be Rome at this time, and they're going to set up and reestablish the kingdom as God designed it. So when Jesus makes these claims about being who he was, he's seen as political, and that's why these different groups would constantly test him. They, they doubt these claims. He doesn't really fit the description. And that's the problem with Jesus, right? His messaging was off. And I think if we put this identity of Jesus in, in modern political terms, how we would see him, we would say, well, Jesus was a promising politician, but never lived up to his full potential. Like he, he, he talked big, he made a lot of promises, but nothing ever really happened. Like he, like, most politicians, right? So he's very political. Uh, he said he was going to do these things, but none of them happened. Or what he, what he tried to connect us to from the prophets doesn't, doesn't really connect like we've always thought it would. He, he's not talking about overthrowing governments. He's talking about God's kingdom. I, that doesn't, we're talking about David's kingdom. We want to see David's kingdom. We want to see David's throne reestablished. That's what we're looking at. Like, get your swords and kill some dudes and do some stuff. And, and Jesus is, you know, not doing that. He's talking about something different than what they're saying. So he seems kind of like a failed politician here. You know, he just never reached his potential. But 
Here's the key to the entirety of Jesus. Here's the key to the message of Jesus and the methods of Jesus and the teaching and the work of Jesus. Jesus was mainly, mostly concerned about allegiance to a kingdom. That is that the heart, the message of Jesus, allegiance to a kingdom. This is the, I'm finishing with this point at the end because this is the hardest thing for us to grasp in our culture. We don't operate under a kingdom. We don't operate under the rule of one who is all authority. We don't, our politics are not built that way in this country. So we have a hard time grasping the importance of this, grasping the, the heart of this. We have to get this in order to follow Jesus, period, and in order to follow him in political, the political realm and the social issue realm like Jesus did and wants us to do. So we see this allegiance to the kingdom in, in three quick ways. And first we see it in what we desire what we desire. Jesus would say it this way, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, Jesus's point was always spiritual in nature. It's not, as we just said, it's not that he missed the mark on his, on his mission. It's that everyone else missed his point entirely. It was always spiritual in nature from day one, from the beginning. His mission in eternity past was not about a physical kingdom. It was something bigger than that. And the people just could not see that or they would not see that. You see, we talked about what we desire. Israel desired a human king, but Jesus, or a human politician rather. Israel desired a human politician, but Jesus was a cosmic king. Those two things are not the same. What they're looking for is here, and Jesus is way up here. They're looking for a human politician, and he is a cosmic king. That was always the point. What they desired is not what actually happened. That's why they missed him. The second way that we see allegiance to a kingdom is what we choose to focus on. What we choose to focus on. Later in Matthew 6, Jesus says these famous words, verse 33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This goes back to the spiritual nature of Jesus. How we tend to live life is very much uh, temporal and external. Our politics are temporal and external. What do I mean by that? Temporal is even, even your 10-year master plan as a politician is pretty short-sighted in the grand scheme of time. A 10-year plan, 20-year plan, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Like that 30 years is not that far into the future, people, okay? So we're talking about that's like, boop, you barely see it on a timeline of time. And so we tend to see things in a temporal nature, right here, right now, what's in front of us. We also see our lives, and especially political issues, as external. So, I mean, I know that politicians say that they are servants of the people. Really, they're power-hungry people, right? And so politics is all about, I'm going to have this position to control other people. I'm going to have the power to make decisions that affect lives of actual other people. How cool is that? That's how our modern day, that's how our earthly politics work. Temporal, right here, right now, and external, how I can control people. But the politics of Jesus is eternal and internal, okay? So he's not thinking short-term, he's thinking eternal. It's all about not just this one dot on the line of time that you can see or that you live in, he sees 
from before there was a beginning to after the end. That's his timeline. It never ends. So he's seeing everything that Jesus talks about is, is eternal, not temporal. And it's also internal. So again, political stuff now is external. How, how can I control others? But the politics of Jesus is internal. How can God change me? How can he affect me? How can he make me more like what he wants me to be? Not how I could control others externally, but how God can change me. Again, those are not the same. What we see and what we experience here and now, we have to really see with eyes of faith to see what Jesus is really, what he was always getting at. And then the third thing that we see as we begin to, to close this morning is, is not just what we desire, not just what we focus on, but allegiance to a kingdom is all about what we devote ourselves to. It's what we desire, what we focus on, and now what we devote ourselves to. And this is the hardest part. Let's go back to Mark 12. Again, the, the story is where they approach Jesus to trick him about paying taxes or not. We're going to go back to that and look at a deeper teaching that Jesus doesn't even say out loud. But when you, when you see this, you're going you're gonna to wonder, how, how have I missed this all along? Let's go back. So this is uh, verse 16. So Jesus asked for the coin. They brought the coin, and, and he asked them, whose image is this? on the coin, and whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God, and to God what is God's, and they were amazed at him. Jesus asks them when he has the coin, whose image is on the coin? What he's saying is, whoever's image is on that thing, that thing belongs to that person. So this coin belongs to Caesar. Give, it, give the coin back to Caesar. But then he says, give to God what is God's. Use that. He didn't ask this question, but let's ask it. It's implied here. He's saying, whose image is on you? God's image is on you. So he's saying, give, to, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. If his image is on you, you belong to him. Therefore, you give yourself to him. Let's take it one step further. In reality, in totality, what is God's image on in the universe? Everything. Everything. So what Jesus is saying, if you belong to him, give yourself to him. And really, what Jesus is saying, God's image is on everything, so you need to give him everything. Everything. We don't think that way in modern politics. We don't think that way in, in modern living. It's, it's hard to do, but we must. Because again, Jesus' mission, his whole point is allegiance to a kingdom. And here's, here's something that I, I want us to take home with us today. This, this understanding. In this political season... Election time. Jesus is not asking for our vote. He is looking for our allegiance. He's not interested in our democracy because he's running a kingdom. He doesn't care about issues that we care about as much as we do because he's got bigger fish to fry. He's seeing things on a level that we can't even begin to understand unless we really focus in on the entire purpose of Jesus. So, 
let me tightrope walk here for just a couple minutes. Because what I did this week, I thought about what does that mean practically? What does that mean in my everyday life? Especially when it comes to political issues, when it comes to social issues, when it comes to, especially in this season, that's why we have this series right now, okay? What does that mean? What does allegiance to a kingdom really mean? So what I did is I have what I'm calling a manifesto, okay? Here's, and it's a, it's, it's a 10-point plan. You know, it really is. There's, it'll be quick. Don't, don't worry. Ooh, 10 points. It's quick. It's a challenge for us to do our best as followers of Jesus to see ourselves as, a, as being allegiant to the kingdom of God. Okay, so here's what that means practically for our lives. Are you ready to be offended? Woo, here we go. All right. Here's what that means. It means my challenge is that we would be more committed to Jesus than any politician. The challenge is that we would have more love for Scripture than any political platform. The challenge is that we would care more about the souls of our neighbors than the soul of America. The challenge is that we would be as bold about sharing the gospel as we are about sharing our political viewpoint. The challenge is that we would use social media to spread our hope in Jesus more than our trust in a party. The challenge is that we would have as much concern over our personal prayer lives as we do getting prayer back in school. Our challenge is that we'd be as passionate about funding the ministry as we are about funding the police. The challenge is that we would engage in our pursuit of godly joy more than our pursuit of happiness. The challenge is that we would pledge more allegiance to the King of Heaven than we pledge to any flag of any country. The challenge is that we would celebrate our freedom in Christ more than our freedom in or from any country because one can be taken away and one cannot. That's the challenge. It's a hard one. I mean, some of these things I almost didn't put in there because they cut pretty close, right? Some of those are very personal issues. Some of those are very like, whoa, real? That's what that means? That's what that means. That's what allegiance to a kingdom means. It's not about my preference. It's not about my political opinion. That doesn't, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't amount to anything, right? Because political parties come and go, nations rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And if we, are, if we show allegiance to that kingdom, no matter what else changes or shakes or falls or crumbles, we're going to be fine. We're not going to have to necessarily even I'm going to be careful. Again, we're doing the Walenda thing, all right? If we show true allegiance to the kingdom, we may not have to adjust our political views as far as often. Because we're going to know, okay, this is what the kingdom of God is. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. So let's try to make, that's what Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven, your will be done, okay? Uh, Not to get too political here, but too late. All right, let me just say this about, about that manifesto or that challenge. None of those issues that I just talked about are bad. Caring about those issues is not bad. Political discourse and debate is not bad. I happen to love political discourse and political debate. It's one of my passions of my life, okay? Uh, So I love it. Patriotism is great, but as Christians, all of that must be secondary to our allegiance to the kingdom of heaven and its king. All of that, your party, your opinions, your views, all of it must be secondary to the kingdom of heaven and its king. That's the challenge, ultimate allegiance to the king. 
So the question is, do we see this today? And will we do this today? Will we live the true way of Jesus?